0: Welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Susan Bidding and Tan So from the University of Washington about their research, which looks at vote buying and land taking in village elections in China. Susan is an associate professor at the Department of Political Research. Tan is a PhD student. You can find more information about Susan and Tan's research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD Director Adeline Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So thank you for joining me today and have the chance to talk a lot about, I think, vote buying and kind of clientelism and questions about how it works in rural China. Um, which is exciting. For those who are listening, I I read a paper that has been co-authored by Susan and Tan and some of their co-authors. It's called Farmland and Fraud, Rent Seeking and Vote Buying in China's Village Elections. And it's a a really, really interesting paper that got me thinking a lot about not only China, but the ways in which vote buying works elsewhere as well. Um, So I wanted to get some insights from both of you today on, on these issues. Well, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about what village elections do um, and what they mean in China.
1: Yeah, well, I can start with a broad background. Um, so um, village elections are technically not elections for positions in the formal government structure. Villages are thought of as part of society. And so they are a locus of actual meaningful contested elections that select the Um, village head and the village committee. Mm -hmm. At the same time, and those are are popular elections in which all adults are eligible to vote, there is also a communist party committee in every village. And there have also been elections instituted for the communist party committee that um, is limited only to party members. And then it's an empirical question, what's the relationship between the village head and the communist party secretary? But this paper focuses um, primarily on the um, election of the village head, who makes important decisions about allocation of village resources, policy, implements policy, and maybe Tom, you'd like to add more? Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, so there's actually just a new law implemented last year, so uh, changing the term of all the village heads from three years to five years. Okay. And it is required that all the, all the village heads must be elected by the villagers based on majority rule. And for the party part, so there's a, also, a, as a Professor Whitey mentioned, there's a party sector in each village. So the law didn't stipulate that uh, the, the sector has to be elected. But actually, in reality, like most of them are elected today, uh, using what's called a two ballot system, which means that the villagers will first uh, pick the candidates. Because this is a party's position, right? Mm-hmm. So supposedly, they can only be elected by the party members. But because of the government, the state, want to increase their legitimacy, so for the first round they let the let the villagers to to pick the candidates and then the party members vote in the second round for the final winner or the final committee for the party branch so which is why it's called two ballot system because there are two ballots so so yeah they are actually the, the elections are very very common like in the in, in the rural areas and according to the government i think they are they are claiming like 99% at least are really holding the elections okay yeah. okay mm-hmm.
0: and now the the elections for the village chair they don't have to be party members to run do they have to not be? Do they have to run as independents or do they run sometimes as a party member and sometimes as an independent?
1: Yeah, so um, <clears throat> parties don't structure the competition okay. um, in uh, electoral contests for the position of village head. Um, so they're running on um, their background, um, their kind of agenda for the village, but it's not at all structured by parties.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And people wouldn't be concerned if I knew that you were a party member and somebody else, your sort of a competitor, wasn't. Um, I wouldn't think, well, let me elect a party member because that person is closer to the party and will be able to do more for my village. Or does it? I guess that my question is, does it? Does the party part matter indirectly, even if people aren't overtly running on a party ballot?
2: Well, uh, I, I think it it matters to some extent, but not that much because okay. every village has several. Party members. Okay, right? and actually, actually, in recent years, it's becoming more and more common that the candidates are not party members. You know, there's a popular trend in China is calling the rich governing villages. So actually, it's also uh stipulated in the in the new party regulation, saying that you know the local government should encourage you know these successful entrepreneurs who were originally okay. from village to return to their villages so they can use their uh, connections, you can, they can use their intelligence resources to contribute the development of their villages. Right? As you can see, many of them were not party members because they had uh, leave their villages to start their business very early. And actually, so they, but, but they are becoming very, very popular. So, okay. so, so okay. yeah, you can see, and, and actually, I think there's a, a tendency that villagers pre- yeah, in, in, indeed, they pre- support them, because they think you know, they're rich, they must be smart, right? So, yeah, I, I think, to some extent, yes, party members, but, but you know, it's, it's not really the, the most key factor that will affect villagers' uh, decisions and, and, and behaviors. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And one of our co-authors, Tong Long Zhang, who's a professor at um, South China Agricultural University has done um, other separate data analysis to look at the backgrounds of elected village heads. And um, since 2007, like so in the past 10 to 15 years, like <clears throat> entrepreneurs have been mm-hmm. one of the most common kind of sort backgrounds of successful elected village heads.
0: Okay, Um, okay. Which is also really interesting when you think about the turn towards capitalism in in China as a whole, right? It's really part of that. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So you said that they help implement policy, and how much do they determine how many resources the village gets? So, you know, this idea that I want to elect somebody who might have a business background or might have that kind of a those sets of skills is that because I then think that they're going to be able to lobby and to get more resources for the village or is it because I just think that they're you know kind of skilled at, you know kind of implementing things and and the, the resources are stable no matter who's in office what do they what do they have is a role in, in obtaining resources oh
2: I see yes so I, I think there's a popular belief that the richer people they should enjoy closer connection with the government okay. and as you mentioned right you know the uh, so for the village to develop, they need to have resources. So uh, in rural China, these resources can come from two sources. So one is of course from the government. Right? The government mm-hmm. will provide you with the funding. Right? They will provide you with you know the materials they need. The government also have to be selective because they, they doesn't have really like a, you know all the money. Right? They, they not have some portion of the money. So they will they will be, they will be selective. So people believe that you know if they are they are rich, right? Then they should enjoy closer collection with the government because, you know, this is a really, interaction is necessary, right? right? You need to get your license, right? You need to uh, sell your products to the government or whatever, right? So that's on the one hand, so, you know, this is, is uh, I think, what people believe, you know, like, I think it's a popular people. And also, you know, if you're rich and when your village need resources, you know, it's also not rare to find that this rich village leaders, they use their own money and resources resource to contribute to their villages. So, uh, like, in a village I visited, so the government actually only paid the village like uh, really $4,000. That's all the money the village office can get right? because this is a very poor township. Right? But, the, but the village still developed very well because the village leader was willing to use his own money to pay for the development of the villages. So okay. yeah, I I, I, would, I would say like that.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And again, just to provide some, some deeper background. Uh, so it used to be that villages got resources from the agriculture tax um, and from a, a range of officially mandated fees. Those have all been eliminated in the first decade of the 21st century. And this is part of the idea of reducing the burden on farmers, which used okay. to be a uh, great source of conflict. So under the preceding, prior to, to uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Hu Jintao, his administration, Oversaw the abolition of agricultural taxes okay. and fees that supported village budgets, and so villages are now much more reliant on funds that yes. come from the the state above and um, through transfers into the village or the village's own resources. Yes. But they don't have the they no longer have the kind of state backing to tax. Yes. Okay. Um, Tax villagers, so so that's a major shift that happened in the first decade of the 21st century, and and informed, this is kind of the background for what Tan was yes, just describing. Yes, yes, yes,
0: okay, thanks. am I correct that individuals can have the option of paying their local taxes to different villages? This is what I was told, and I'm I'm just it could be entirely wrong. I was told that you know basically that villages almost as if they're selling things that they you, that you can pay your local tax to them, but reaction or the result is that you get um you get something back in in return so it's almost like a sales scheme it's that's not that's not something you've ever heard of but
1: i think the more important thing is that villages don't tax yes. um okay. uh, there's so locally since the mid 2000s right yes, that's, whole, and and yeah. there there's a kind of principle that you shouldn't have to pay any a cent a penny of officially mandated fees as a villager.
2: Right? Yeah, um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, so there are no taxes, right, but uh, the, so I, I think that the only fee that villagers need to pay, you know, or hand to the government is for the medical insurance, or the okay. insurance, you know, or the pensions. But, you know, uh, based on my fieldwork, you know, I think this is not difficult because this is uh, relatively cheap, not totally not comparable to the to the tax and that they had to pay in the past, right, as Professor Reiting mentioned, and also it's uh, is actually for their good because they okay. only pay a minor amount but when they are sick or when they are like you need to have a surgery, right, you know, the government will pay a lot of that. So they do need to pay these fees, but this is definitely not the tax. And they're willing to do that because it's for their good. And it's much lower than it used to be. Uh, very low, actually, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Well, not, in this case, um, the, the Rural Cooperative Medical Scheme is actually a new program, okay. right? So they didn't, um, after the collapse of uh, abolition of communes, there was no kind of, Medical coverage for yes. rural mm-hmm. residents, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there was this period in which they weren't paying for medical coverage, but except for 100% out of pocket. So, so the, what Tan's describing is actually a new program for, okay. to yeah. mm-hmm. provide okay. some very basic coverage for all rural residents mm-hmm. okay
0: but if i'm a if i'm a rural dweller i still think i'm paying out less now than i would have been Absolutely. you know 10 years That's ago me. basically yes, yeah. yes definitely yes okay. um, now we, to, we keep talking about villages but i think it's useful to put it in a context of you know what percentage what is a village i guess is what one way to put it
1: um well uh, to go back maybe to where we started so there are five levels of government that go from the center down to the township um, the township is the lowest level of government. Below the township are villages, and there are both, like, natural villages and administrative villages, um, so they vary in size. I know you might want to describe, you know, kind of the, the typical size of the village where you spent a lot of time. Oh, yeah, so it,
2: it can vary, actually, a lot. So uh, the mainstream village can be actually a, a compromise of several natural villages, so they can be very big, but, you know, still there can be very small village. I, I think the smallest one I ever visited was, like, only has a less than 100 residents. Okay. Yeah, but the okay. biggest one I visit, but at least they claim to be a village, although they are compromised by uh, three natural villages. They have like more than 4,000 people. So you can see yeah, the size of the village really varies greatly in rural China.
0: But this is also an, a rural administrative district, right? So I guess what I'm th- thinking is, you know, we don't think of a village, for example, within Beijing, or do we? And that's the...
1: Yeah, so um, their uh, urban designations also are um, oversee rural counties, mm-hmm. and um, the county is the lowest level of administration, has the complete complement of government offices. Below them are the townships and then villages. So Beijing, as a provincial-level unit, will oversee some territory that's considered rural, okay. and that would contain villages. Yes. But not
0: everybody would necessarily live in a village. So I right. could be, I could live in an area that's not village and that is actually... In that sense, we're talking
1: about rural. So China's also going through a process of urbanization. And as urbanization reaches the kind of peri-urban areas, uh, there you can see these transitions. Um, villages, especially as their land is taken for industrial and commercial development, villages can be converted to street committees. Okay. Um, they have similar kind of political structures. They're also below the formal administrative hierarchy mm-hmm. of the state. And so we see that transition, right, from a, technically from a villager to a member of a, a street or residential okay. committee. Okay. Um, and that is a like, that characterizes this process of kind of urbanization.
0: Why would I want to run for a village as to be a village chair?
1: Uh, Well, that's precisely one of the questions we address in this paper, and the inspiration came from from Tan, who has done some amazing small-n and ethnographic work, and uh, I've also done some household survey work, so we're able to combine Mm -hmm. um, intensive case study research with a larger-n data set where we could test some of the hypotheses, but Tan's inductive work generated some really Great hypothesis to answer this question, so why don't you lead off? Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, So in simple terms, they want to run office because they can become very rich. Okay. So so formal salary for the village casualties is relatively poor. So the national average is about like $300 per month. Okay. So it's it's really not high. But there are uh, plenty of opportunities for them to earn extra income which can make them like super, super rich. Like, you know, the, the, the movie like, from us here, the crazy rich Asians, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, they can be crazy rich as well. <laughs> so, and there are several so- resources. I, I would say they can be categorized into two resources. One is like, you know, the resource that the village naturally natu- natu- possesses, you know, like land, right? You know, if there are land takings, well, of course, land takings initiated by the government, but the land, you know, in, in theory, is uh, collectively possessed by the village, right? So when this land are, are being taken, are being sold, the village leader, they have good opportunity to make money from this land, right? And also the government, they have, uh, they do transfer a lot of resources or funds to the village to mm-hmm. support the uh, development or these kind of things. So this also provide opportunity for the village leaders to to take money, right? For for instance, uh, the villages in China, right? So they don't pay ag- agricultural agriculture tax now, but they can apply for subsidies from the government for growing certain types of uh, crops. Okay, So okay. this is based on the area of the land or the uh, production amount of the, of the land. But you know, uh, <clears throat> so this money, you know, usually are sometimes often uh, first transfer to the village account, which will then be distributed by the village leaders to the villagers. Or they must be, um, you know, applied by the villagers on behalf of the villagers. So they have opportunity to, to, to make money. So the similar logic is applied to the land. So to the land taking. Because the village cadres, they help the government will acquire the land from the villagers. Okay. So the money, the compensation, the negotiation, much of the procedure has to go through the rich cadres. So they can take this opportunity and to make a lot of money. So I, I think it's, uh, even the, the official news media report, you know, has exposed uh, several instances that from one single deal, uh, a village leader can take like several millions of yuan. You know, which is like really a lot of money. Like like, like yeah, still in U. S. dollars, there's still a lot of money from like one single land taking. So I would say the, they are willing to run for office, not because for promotion, uh, not because for the formal salary, because of this uh, extra benefits that is lie behind their position.
1: And maybe to provide some, of, again, the, the, the deeper background. So land in China is either owned by the state in mm-hmm. urban areas or it's owned by the village collective, which is run by the village collective. village heads uh, collectively owned by all the people of the village as represented by the village head in the rural areas and legally the uh, state has a monopoly on the right to convert land from rural to urban Um, and this is one thing that we exploit for our causal inference in the paper the so that the for legally legal land takings are initiated by the state and they have the, the sole legal right to convert land Um, from rural collective ownership to urban state ownership for all the kinds of developmental purposes. And then they set the compensation, and as Tom was just describing, typically that compensation goes through the village leaders, and it's this huge pool of money that's then distributed to village households there are also of course the possibility that when you have a monopoly people want to get around it right so village leaders we also see the phenomena of informal land sales Mm -hmm. that are technically illegal but a village head could actually initiate the the conversion of land kind of under the table for urban industrial or commercial uses and try to control all the resources himself uh, and and those then are endogenous to the village, but we're we're um, also looking at uh, official land takings, which the majority are initiated by the state, and they're exogenous to the village. So the village can't the village leader can't decide like when you know the road is coming through, when this industrial park is going to be built, and so that's an exogenous yes. to mm-hmm. the village decision making process. And we try to exploit that yes. in mm-hmm. figuring out what's going on and. In, okay. In, uh, Vote buying. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in hearing more
0: about the link between these sort of land takings or land sales and vote buying mm-hmm. itself. But before we get there, just give us a sense of what the campaigns look like. What it you know what are the options of candidates who are running in these village elections?
1: Well, in and in the paper we um, actually, and I think you should take this time because mm-hmm. we use case study data to really unpack the the nature of the electoral sure, yes. process. So um, so um, maybe you can describe the case study and the range of candidates who competed. Yeah, sure, um, of course. Yeah.
2: Uh, so first off, the legally, So um, so, but the, the campaign in China, so you, like, uh, it's not very like the, the campaign in the Western, right? So, I mean, uh, according to the law, you're allowed to give speeches, but that's really pretty much what you can do, right? Okay. So, and, and actually, speech is very common, and in our paper, we found that um, and also, like uh, most of the candidates, they did give a campaign speech on the election day, and the, the, the average number of the audience is actually relatively high, you know. So yeah, but but really, uh, that's ca- so formally the campaign is a, is a, is a, is a pretty much like the, the only thing you can do. But informally, or like even secretly, there are a lot of things you can do, mm-hmm. and, and it's these things that determine the outcome of the campaign, right? You know, uh, you know, whether or not you can you can become the final winner. So voting actually become the most, I find like really the most, one of the most important things that help the candidates to win the election. Right? So uh, they uh, they offer gifts or they offer money to the villagers. right? They hire brokers. So in the Chinese term, this is called, the, or in the local term, I, I think the term varies in different places of China, but in the place I would say it's called La So it means that you know they will help the candidates to reach to all these villagers, to listen to their opinions, to deliver the money, the gifts, to the villagers, so the money can be uh, quite attractive. The amount of money. So in our case study, one candidate offered like a 600 yuan, which is like a, a slightly less than 100 dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And another one all beat him by offering 800 yuan, so which is more than 100 dollars. And also they would uh, make promise, saying that if you uh, vote for me, uh, give you like more subsidies after I win, or okay. I will help you to apply for the medical insurance, or all, all these kind of things. So, yeah, I think really in our case study, the campaigning is centered around this vulva, right? And the candidates, they were really trying to beat each other by offering villagers more direct and immediate benefits.
0: And are they paying a villager regardless of whether the villager is voting for them? In other words, are there villagers who are taking money from more than one candidate? Yes, it's common, actually. Okay.
2: So uh, it, it's not really to friend the villagers. They do take money from uh, like several candidates. But I found that actually also v- villagers they, they, they have different opinions on that. So for some of this like uh, relatively honest villagers, right they, they feel really uh, bad about taking money okay. from both people. So af- after they take like the, the money, so some of the actually returns. So they, once they make the decision, say, okay, I think this offer is better. Oh, you know, oh, I, I think this is uh, you know, well they both are rich, well this one may be maybe more honest, right? So I will vote for this guy. They will return the money to the other people. But for, uh, for 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 some of them, right? They will just be like, oh, I'll just take you know the money from both sides because this is a secret balloting, right? You know, it's a it's a difficult to to detect. At least that's what they think. So so they they, they may take money from both sides. But but the candidates, there are also strategies for them to to figure out whether or not the villagers have voted for them.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. So so one would be you know of course with as cell phones becoming more mm-hmm. common, you know, just to ask the person who received the money to take a a picture of their ballot you know mm-hmm. to show that oh, this is right. that person i voted for but there are other techniques like because they're voting not just for the village head but the composition of the entire village committee that brokers ask the recipients of cash to also vote for themselves. Okay. Um, and of course they won't win, but their name will appear and it'll it'll identify their ballot and whom they voted for for village head. And so that's a mechanism that emerged from the yes. ethnographic uh-huh. study of, uh-huh. of another way of monitoring vote buying in a, in a sensible secret ballot. Yes. Uh-huh. That's very interesting.
0: And, that, and so they're also then, they're present at the ballot counting, right? Yes. So um, they're able to see that you wrote in your name and you voted for... Are they are voting for more than one
1: candidate though, or how's that working? So they vote for the village, the composition of the entire village committee with the village head and the other members of the committee.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. So I could write myself in as a member of the committee, vote for you for yeah. a village yes. head, and, and then you can watch that ballot come through and say, okay, right. she did her job and she's and right. she's good. Yes.
2: Uh, and also another right. common strategy is you make the payment contingent. And so like uh, in one instance I I it was you know the so uh, the, the the one of the candidates offered a gift card. To every villager, right? But the, the game car game had like really very low balance in the beginning. So okay. the leader was like, Well, uh, so he said, you know, if I win the election, right, you know, like your, your game car will have 500 yuan, right? So which well still at $700. But if I lose, right, then it will you, stay you, very low. Yeah, you will not be able to cash <laughs> out, right? If I win, you can just take this car to one of the, the shopping centers in the, in the county, and then, you know, you, you will be automatically, you know, will have a balance of 500 yuan. Okay. So they tie their benefits together only I win that you'll be able to receive the offer I, you know I promised okay. you.
0: Which is also interesting because it still means that credibility matters yes. right uh-huh. You still have to be a credible candidate to sort of say, okay well I believe that you'll increase the balance on my gift card one side uh-huh. uh-huh. once you've won right? yes. That's, yes. that yes. still yeah. matters
1: yeah And theoretically that's a really interesting concept outside of the, the context of party structured competition right because it's not that the party is going to discipline the candidates right these are candidates who are uh, really just advocating for themselves and so it's an individual-based credibility so yes, none of no. this is monitored by an outside organization mm-hmm. or disciplines the candidates and no, I, th-
0: I thought that was really interesting because in some ways your paper is really thinking about what does vote by look like the absent party machines right yes, because yes, a lot no. of the work and thinks about party machines or brokers i mean not not exclusively but that's a big a big portion of the literature on this mm-hmm. and you're really saying okay what does it look like if we're just
1: talking about individual candidates right at this level of government yes yeah mm-hmm. and it would be interesting to see it tested out in also areas where parties are relatively weak yes. or mm-hmm. have very thin coverage and do we see similar dynamics exactly
0: Tell me, what did you find? What's the what's the sort of the crux of the argument with regards to how vote buying and this kind of land takings can be seen together?
1: Um, we were able to, um, first of all, measure vote buying. I don't know if we uh, talked about yeah, that. We should, um, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so building on the hypotheses from the, the case study, we were able to, with survey measures, we asked uh, in a representative household survey, have you heard of vote buying in your in the most recent village election. So the idea is that that's not um, impugning the respondent, but they can still report um, whether they're aware of vote buying. And that ranged, um, and so then we were able to compile it into um, a village level measure. And I should say, um, yeah, I, we haven't mentioned our other co-author Shalma, who was also instrumental in some of the methodological okay. challenges okay. <laughs> in, in bringing together all these different levels of, of data. Um, Shalma, who's uh, an assistant professor at Peking University. Excellent. And uh, so, for measuring vote buying, we asked, you know, have you heard of vote? Did you hear about vote buying in the? Or were you aware of vote buying in the most recent village election? And there's a kind of colloquial term for that, yeah. the, like mm-hmm. literally pulling votes, and uh, or formally vote buying. And so, it was used in kind of this colloquial term, and okay. then we're um, able to um, assess, you know, the range of reports in the village. And it went from, um, in some where there were no reports. And then in others, where 50% of villagers reported um, vote buying, okay. um, so so that that's our our um, dependent variable. And then we're really interested in whether there was a, a announcement of a formal land taking prior to the election. And so we also measure land takings, you know, throughout this entire process before elections and then after elections. And so we can compare. The timing of the announcement of land takings, okay, um, because of course you're only if, if our argument holds, you need information about land takings, and uh, and we're, we also look at formal land takings, these decisions and announcements that are exogenous to the village. So the state will you know identify a location for an industrial park or high speed rail or highway or whatever it might be, and that comes and there is an announcement in the village, their meetings, and so where that occurred before the electoral contest that's a significant driver of vote buying. If it happened, if that announcement came in after mm-hmm. the electoral process, right, there's no effect. We also compared it to, uh, you know, an informal taking are endogenous to the mm-hmm. village. And so we with that that is less useful in terms of our kind of causal identification strategy. We also looked at other possible sources of rents, like in the the literature, um, if there are firms in the village, enterprises okay. in the village, you know that could be another target for for rents and and I think in the past that's been important, but I think enterprises today are much more kind of autonomous, less uh, they're more likely to be private, more kind of closed to um, any given village leader, and we didn't weren't able to find uh, a significant relationship between like that as another possible source of rent and vote buying. Yeah. yeah and I don't know if you want to elaborate on land takings, but then we also looked at, you know, there's, as you mentioned, incredibly rich literature on on vote buying in, in local um, elections. And so we also looked at um, a lot of the hypotheses and controlled for the hypotheses coming out of the existing
2: literature yes I think yeah another interesting finding is that we didn't find a secret ballot had a significant correlation with the vote which but well, I mean according to case study we were not really surprising right because even their are secret bad so it's still for, for, possible for uh, the candidates to monitor Britishs behaviors and also mm-hmm. we found that you know uh, the monitor from the government didn't really um, you know have a significant relationship with the worldwide so we, we measure this by the number of town officials like showing up on the election day because this is a, so they do want to make sure that the election didn't go well, right? So the, the township government usually send the officials to monitor each election. But this also didn't affect buying But again, we didn't find this uh, very surprising because so usually these township officials, they arrive uh, at the election day. So only on the day that the election is held, right? they arrive right. at the election. But the worldwide wouldn't occur that late. So they usually happen like, a, like several days or several weeks earlier before the election, right? So that's one reason, and also according to my interviews, I found that, you know, this uh, local official, they also tend to try to avoid troubles. So they even report to the higher level government saying that, okay, this village, there there was a buying, right? You know, they can receive much more work. Right. And the, the higher level official may be like, well, if there's a vote buying, then you need to rehold the election, right, or you need to uh, conduct investigation on on the, on, on the, on the, on the candidates, right? So and you know, for this township officials, they already have a very heavy workload. So they wouldn't be really willing to do these things. But as long as the villagers do not really complain to them, threatening that say, will will against will 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 organize a collective action, then even the township officials, even they are aware of the of the boband. they will usually just you know Let go, go. blind eye. Yeah. Say you know yeah, that's fine.
0: So you, you said the the secret ballot didn't make a difference. But how are you measuring whether the ballot was secret or not secret? Is that asking people the a...
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. So we had a question on the survey asking that was the election conducting the secret ballot. Okay. Right? So mm-hmm. I, I think this is a relatively straightforward to the villagers. right? So they can tell. And actually, according to the law, you know, they, they say that the, the election need to be conducting the secret ballot. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, of course, in reality, some of them are better, you know, are more formalized. Some are just, you know, relatively loose. Right. You know, they don't really provide this kind of placement. But yeah, you know, and also based on my experience, I, I think the secret ballot is required in the villagers for the election.
1: Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, we also were able to identify the ways in which even with the technical implementation of a secret ballot, that information between the vote um, buyer and the uh, recipient of cash, that information still... Transfers. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and what I find interesting about that is that you you might think, well the you know kind of the attitude towards are people around here vote buying or selling their votes was there vote buying in this last election and was the secret, the ballot secret you might have thought they were just correlated by did i like the election or didn't i right and so i think it's really interesting that you're not finding that relationship because it suggests that people are sort of savvy enough to distinguish between was there vote buying and was the was the ballot secret mm-hmm. Right? I mean it suggests that villagers are taking the elections kind of in a in a way that isn't just do I like it don't I like it and kind of painting everything black or yes, or white uh, yeah. depending on their on their attitude. So if I was elected then then what would I you know what would sort of my and then I know that you you spent some time working with yes. these kinds of officials. What would my daily life look like? I mean, should I be glad because now I can sort of take all of these things and I've invested well, or or put differently, what if I wasn't in an area where I didn't I didn't shell out of a lot of a lot of one because I wasn't really going to make a lot of a lot from it. But now I've still landed myself in a position of as a village official. So,
2: so I think if you're elected, you should be very happy. You know okay. there are, there are several reasons. So uh, beside the economic one, right in a village, if you're the leader, you have a very high social status, right? Okay. You know the, the villagers will really respect you, right? And also as Professor White, White mentioned, they do have power, right? You know for this uh, informal land sale. They also have the power to say um, uh, decide whether or not, as a villager, you can get a new piece of residential land. So okay. in China's rural areas, if you are a villager, so if you want to get a new house, you you have to turn your application to the village office. Okay. It has to be approved by the village leader, who can then determine the plot and the size. So you will be respected by the villagers. You will have a have, have a power. You have power, yeah. right? So I mean, yeah. at least in this village, you you are like an emperor, right? Okay. You know. So and also for the economics. so uh economic reasons. So even that there's a uh, no obvious land taking, you can be very creative. So I, I think I've uh, met a lot of really smart village leaders. You know, they are villagers. I, I think in the literature of Chinese studies there has been a common assumption that, you know, so they do know that the village leaders can make money. But it's only in villages that is rich. Right? Okay. So only when you live in village that has a, has a rich resources they can become rich. So in my field work I thought this may not be the case because even in poor villages, you can still have the opportunity to become rich, right? For instance, in one in one, one village I, I studied, so, you know, this village was very poor, but it has a lot of people, it has over 2,000 people. So what the village leader did was he, he let his wife open a restaurant in the village, and he asked the villagers to say, you know, if there are important meals or receptions, or weddings, right, you have to put the, the gathering here. And so they also become very rich, right? right? And besides, you know, in this case, because of an anti-poverty campaign, the poor village you are, the more likely you can receive the support from the government which again help you the to have the you know opportunity to make money and also you know as a rich leader so you know you will have more opportunities to contact to become closer with the township official so I think this is our, all the benefits for becoming the village cadres which is fighting to become happy but on the other hand to be fair I think that right, the the workload of the village cadres are becoming really really heavy especially in this days. so in the past the village cadres or village officials because you know they are not a level of government the village office is not a level of government they are considered more as a part-time job okay so you don't have to be in your office you can still do the do the go farming right you can you can you're not required to stay in the office but now you know in the village i studied you know this is a definitely a full-time job okay. and sometimes they ca- carry even heavier uh, tasks than the township or county officials right so when they're anti-poverty campaign for, for instance they are responsible for directly helping this poverty household to become richer. If they don't provide the crucial assistance, they may become in trouble because they will not be able to pass the cadre evaluation system, the cadre evaluation that will be imposed on them by the township officials. And also, for all these rural campaigns, they are the direct implementers. They they need to help the government. So for the anti-criminal one, they need to help the government to figure out who is a potential suspect of these criminals, right? And also for land-taking, with no doubt, right, the village will will strongly protest the government, right, you know, sometimes when they're unhappy with the conversation. So it's a village leader's responsibility to persuade, you know, sometimes even to press the villagers to accept the deal, right? And also there is now a party-building campaign, again, very, very heavy workload. So I I think they're both, you know, positive and negative side for being the village candidates.
0: This brings me to sort of one... You know, because in many ways, what you're describing uh, fits even something like you know, village heads in Malawi or Zambia. Uh-huh. It, I mean, they're not elected, but there's a lot of similarities in terms of these really crucial roles that they play. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but and I know that this hasn't been the sort of the focus of your study so far. But but this idea that you have both the party official and the village head, right? Because I could also imagine a lot of these decisions being done by the party official in terms of allocation of land or you know, sort of these different sets of prerogatives are helping. So what's the role of the party official and has that changed in the period since we've started having village elections?
1: Well I think at first there's a lot of variation um, over time and over space okay. in the relationship between the party secretary and the village head. Often they are the same person and one of the interesting things is, is um, in some of the case studies that talented village heads get tapped to become the party okay. secretary. So this is a way that it's providing information to the state and the party. You know, it, it's certainly possible that it happens the other way around, that the party secretary is a successful candidate for village head. Um, I think um, so there's variation there over time and over space. The personalities matter of a lot, of yes. course, and, and talent of personalities and kind of who becomes the dominant figure, which is another kind of idiosyncratic source of, of variation. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, under Xi Jinping, the party secretary's position is becoming, you know, more important, and that, and that um, accounts for some of the variation over time.
2: So okay. yeah. So uh, again, the conventional understanding is the party secretary should be the number one okay. in the village because you know there's this uh, principle that the party should lead everything, right? And but you know, as Professor already mentioned, but this can vary. So the personality of the village committee chair, right? They 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 can challenge the, the party secretary and they can become successful. So in my studies, I did find that you know, like not a small number of the village that, that the committee chairman are actually the the number one. You know, but of okay. course they still still most often the case that the party secretary are the number one, right? But but in some cases, you know, the committee cha- chairman they can also become the one. But this is a uh, uh, you know depending on the personality, like the size of your clients, You know, like how many relatives you have in the mm-hmm. village, and also the wealth. Are you rich? Are you able to provide more resources? And actually, I think interesting is, uh, again, in a document actually uh, uh, initiated by the party last year, so they were officially saying that we will start to gradually push for to let the one person to be in charge of both positions. So this is called the on one shoulder. But they didn't specify or make it clear that which direction should be. So should they let the party secretary to become the committee chairman or will they let the committee chairman to become the party secretary but they have made it very clear that you know uh, now in, in, in later right as time goes on then you know it should be the same person who take both positions but I, I think you know this is also at the same time this is actually creating a headache for the local governments which means that right you know they, they will need to figure out some ways to, to, to meet this goal but I, I think that the, the party is uh, making clear that they want to avoid the conflict between the, the village head and the party head by turning them into this one person.
1: Uh, that had certainly appeared, you know, over a long period in the past. Yes. that In mm-hmm. some villages, they are the same person. But yeah, now that is an official direction. Yes.
2: Yeah. Official direction. Yes.
1: That's
0: fascinating. This mm-hmm. is really really interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, are there? points that you want to make sure that, that people understand about how, especially kind of elections and, and, and rural China works, but are also other notions? I mean, you know, we tend to focus on how, yeah, governance takes place, both within parties and, and elections and outside of it. So if there's other points, like you mentioned with the clans, et cetera, there's other sort of really important points I think that'd be great to, um, to get your take on. That.
1: Well, one, and at this Maybe we can draw you into the conversation <laughs> as well. but but I think the motivating question is why, it is, why does why is vote buying take place? and um and so the no takeaway message that we want to highlight is, the availability of rents, right? When, like, when there are resources that are associated with office holding, this is what's driving vote buying. And I think, and I don't know if, if um, we could draw you in to think about, like, in the villages where where you've done a lot of research. But I, I think that's the the big message that um, we want to think about: the, the the spoils of office. Right.
2: Yeah, and also I I think we in our paper we want to highlight this uh, information function of the Volvine, right? So because you see, relatively rich rural people can use Volvine, right? And you know when they're pursuing this volvai, they're actually sending a signal, or they let the state know that you know who are the economic elites in the rural areas that can be co-opted, right? So yeah, I think also we want to highlight you know this uh, information function of the volvai to the state.
1: And I think that also really sets an agenda for future research, where you know we'd like to be able to to um, see the process, like what happens to successful vote buying candidates in subsequent elections where we don't have that data in this paper, but um, we'd like to be able to see you know, how they do in yes. office. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they more likely to become the, the party secretary? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, how does the state use this signal? Um, yeah. I have resources, I'm politically motivated Uh, I want to win this election, then what happens?
0: No, and I think it's important to think about the difference of the context, right? Mm -hmm. So in many cases, we think about how even where we have parties, particularly where we have relatively weak parties, the ability of a candidate to sort of buy their own campaign, right, you know, has a lot to do with which candidates get nominated as the party candidates yes. right so you know you're in a in a world where that's not the issue right but there is an issue about whether the government which you can almost think of as acting in some ways as a party in this case right but is saying okay who do i back right yes. uh-huh. um you know and and there's a really interesting tension that doesn't exist i think with parties With parties you know it's, it's whoever wins right and then we can sort of move on from there you mentioned it before we started the podcast today but you know this important kind of tension between doing well enough and keeping the villagers happy enough, (laughs) you know, that they're not going to sort of be frustrated and so the, there's the stability issue, right? Mm-hmm. And and that sort of prerogative and that sort of set of incentives for the government, as well as we want somebody that the villagers will follow or that can get things done or that can pay for their own elections and, and, you know, and maybe even contribute a bit back to the to the village, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different set of, of incentives, right, that you have in the, say the Chinese yes. case versus if you're just looking at a party that then yes it wants to get into office, but there's a sort of a separation and a kind of a buffer zone between the party and the government right that you don't end up having in this case yeah. um, and it's really fascinating i think there's a lot of things that can be done in terms of thinking about sort of both how book buying is received but the signals it's sending and the signals it sends to whom i think is is really great so, thank you both so much for joining this is yeah, fascinating yeah, thank yeah,
1: well, well thanks for uh, inspiring the conversation <laughs> thank yeah thanks thank
0: you thanks.